Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 223. This time around, you are joined by award-winning filmmaker Ben Wheatley. He has made an insane new movie called In the Earth, being called one of the best horror films of 2021. At time of release, your chance to experience it for yourself is in theaters now. Learn about the horror that inspires him. Hear about how he crafted this entire journey during lockdown. Get immersed into the occult and the art that built the world this takes place in. A world of a search for meaning, unbearable tension, and an overwhelming symphony of light and sound. Episode 223 starts now. Tell me his story. These are his memories. Can you feel him now? In the earth. No, I don't know what you mean. I think you do. So what are you working on? Searching ways of making crops more efficient. Funny place to study crops in a forest. We had to send a rescue party in to get a group out a couple of months ago. They got lost. Why didn't they use GPRS? There's no fun reception in there. People get a bit funny in the woods sometimes. seems to just keep us here. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a mesmerizing and impactful filmmaker. He started working in shorts and commercials, doing everything from storyboarding to editing and animation, fueled by an intense love of cinema. With the success of a short video he put together called Cunning Stunt, he inadvertently became a part of internet history as it became one of the first videos to ever go viral online. He was brought on as the architect to do the same for different companies across the world, winning the Lion Award at Cannes in 2006. He went on to work on TV projects as diverse as the BAFTA-nominated fantasy comedy The Wrong Door, Ideal, and the iconic Doctor Who, and his own films 2009's Down Terrace, Kill List, a six-time award-winning High Rise with Tom Hiddleston and Jeremy Irons, Sightseers, A Field in England, Free Fire, executive produced by Martin Scorsese, the BAFTA recognized Rebecca, a segment for 2012's ABCs of Death, and much more. He's been nominated for no less than five British Indie Film Prizes and has been honored with nine awards from the most prestigious festivals all over the world. His work is imbued with intense energy and a unique visual style that has the power to leave us at once disoriented, overwhelmed, and inspired. His new film is a perfect vision of all that. It's called In the Earth, and it follows a scientist and park scout as they venture into the woods on an equipment run during a global pandemic. We are honored to welcome its creator, Ben Wheatley. Yeah! Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, 
That was an intro. <laughs> I hope you were making that up as you were going along. <laughs> the stuff that you've accomplished, man, is so impressive, yeah. and we love your work so much, and including this insane journey of a film. Congratulations on it. Thank you so much for soaking our nightmares with the memories of the journey of Martin and Alma. <laughs> <laughs> so what we want to do, at the, just to get us going, what are the horror films that did this to you? The ones that have stayed in your head ever since you experienced them? I did a thing a while back where I had to do a top 10 horror films and I, and I, and I screwed it up and I, and, and accidentally did the top 10 most horrible films. <laughs> and there is, a, there is a difference. And I didn't, and it, it took me a long time to work out what that difference was, you know? And I guess I think that in my top 10, a film I watch, I watch a lot is the thing. And I'll watch any Carpenter movie. And I've re- just recently watched all of them, you know? So I, you know, I'm a, I'm a massive Carpenter fan in, in and out. Um, I think the film that I, the, the first horror film I saw that terrified me was um, Carrie. But, and I think I didn't even see most of the film. I just walked in at the end and, and, um, and I can still feel that hand coming out of the grave now. And I didn't, I think I was an innocent who didn't realize that, that, that people would actually make um, films or television to actually make you upset. So that was, a, that was a moment that was broken for me, the trust of the medium from that point moving forward. And the film that changed me completely was going to see um, Evil Dead 2. Oh, yes. So I saw, I saw it as a, I, I went in blind. I, hadn't, I didn't know about Evil Dead, and I saw it in the cinema on my own uh, after running off from school. So I just went, oh, I'll go and see this film, whatever this is. <laughs> and that was like, oh, my God. <laughs> And I, and I came out completely different. And that was the beginning of it, really. Yeah. What was it about Evil Dead 2 that you feel hit you? Um, the energy of it. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen the, the aggression of it and the kind of the camera work of it and the maniacal glee of it. You know, but, you know, I, I, having seen interviews with Raimi later, I understand the stoogesness of it and all that. But it's something else. It's not. He, he undersells it with this love of the Three Stooges. It's not the Three Stooges by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's somewhere else entirely different. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, the remake? Yeah, I enjoyed it, but I mean, I, I don't think I. No film. Uh, there won't be another film that has the same impact as, on me as Evil Dead Two. It just can't, it can't be. You know, I went in a, a boy and came out a, a slightly older boy. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in the earth filmed over 15 days during the pandemic, where yeah. were you when you came up with the concept and what was your gateway into it? Was the beginning middle or the end that first crawled into your head? I don't know. I mean, I, I, it seemed to be, I'd been reading around a lot of different things during the, the lockdown. And one of the things was about marcosial, mycosial um, fungus. So that was the way, that was the beginning of it, of going, oh, God, that's very interesting. <laughs> and, and the way that they um, attach themselves to roots of, and, and they make networks and, and kind of run forests, basically. They run, the, the trees are a bit stupid, so the, the fungus comes in and goes, sorts them out and becomes their brain, effectively. I thought, that's, that's really amazing. But, but also it had been, you know, I wanted to make another horror film. I hadn't made one for a while, and, and that started percolating. and then you know, the, the, the kind of prospect of taking an audience and terrifying them profoundly was, was something that appealed at that point. What were some of the initial images that popped into your head for this? 
Well, I think that the scene, the um, not to give too much of it away, but the, the kind of there was an idea to take time almost and slow it down. So, like, grab the audience and then just make them suffer through stuff. You know, it was, and, I, and I, that that came quite early on. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's that bit. But the, the other thing was, I was thinking about like kind of Hansel and Gretel and that kind of journey of into the woods where you think you're going. And, and the whole the whole film ended up as like a kind of going through all these different types of horror and science fiction from stuff that I uh, watched as a kid. So there's bits of like there's bits of Ch- Texas Chainsaw, but then there's bits of um, Quatermass and bits of um, Doctor Who, 1970s Doctor Who and the Survivors and all those kinds of kind of uh, Nigel Neal type things were in there as well. You've touched on elements of the occult in movies like Kill List, A Field in England, and now In the Earth. And it certainly adds another layer of dread in the sense that it's a world where even the faith in God can't save us. What draws you into those themes? Well, I, I'm, I'm really interested in it. And I like, the, I like the way that it's kind of not real and real at the same time. You know, it's like kind of, we, don't, we know there's a... There's a sense that um, there's a. I find that I've got a kind of in my head. There's a his, history of it that is a real thing, but then research tells me it's mostly nonsense, right? But at the same time, my heart says, "Well, no, maybe not." And like the way that it kind of keeps coming back as a thing, and that the the dressing that we put around it changes all the time. So, like in the way that so once you start digging into it, you start going, "Oh, well, some of this stuff is actually not not very old at all," you know. But it but there's a shape of it which is old you know so it, you kind of and, and when i when i made kill list um that was based around kind of my own nightmares so it wasn't it was it was an underlying kind of feeling i have that, that this stuff exists even though it, it kind of doesn't but then we kind of bring it then we kind of create it ourselves you know we bring it into into existence what about building the lore for in the earth and this nature god parneg fag and the elements required to bring it to life through art and mythology what went into that it's quite important i've always found it quite important that you make this stuff up because you don't want to step over step on the toes of real religions you know and as different as they might be from your own belief systems there's not it's that thing of going through a book and going oh this is cool look at all these things they believe in let's make them the villains of the thing so i that is somewhere i never ever wanted to be and certainly you know kill list is like that as well it's all it's all utterly made up as much as we can you know so this was the same you know the parnag fake side of it and the and what they see in the woods and the creature in the woods is as, within the film you see you start to understand that maybe that is a projection and not a real thing at all you know because it's it, there's something there and it's causing this myth it's like a myth generating thing in the woods but it's not necessarily the things that the humans are seeing it's, it's not necessarily true yeah what went into the groundwork? I mean, how far is designing this this amazing poster that we see in the in the first cabin and in the book later? All these wonderful things. How much time was spent designing all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, it was in, interesting. We kind of um, uh, Richard Wells did that did the poster um, for the woodcut poster, and, and Richard is someone I'd met through seeing his work online when we made a field in England and he did a kind of, he did a poster for that and then licensed it off of us. And then, you know, we and printed it and I loved his work so much that it, it kind of, as soon as I started writing it, I thought, all right, this would be a, this would definitely be a job for Richard. But like the idea of it, like that, that there's a wood print that that's, that's that big is like, 
that's not right. <laughs> and it's stuff. And I got, I like the idea of like, you know, you go in the, into this, into this lodge, you go, Oh, this stuff's really old. And I'm like, nah, well maybe it just got bought in a, you know, in a thrift sale or whatever. And then they just bought it by the yard. Cause there's it, 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 this weird thing that started happening in British pubs where you'd go in there and there'd be loads of books on shelves. And then you look at them a bit closer and they're just the spines glued into the wall, you know, and it's, it's that kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff goes on a lot that you can't, you go, Oh, this is, it feels old. Is it? Nah, it's not old. <laughs> it's Victorian. How about this, this monolithic stone with the hole in the middle surrounded by symbols? Is there anything behind that design and intention? And at what point was that an image that came into your head? Yeah. I mean, that, that, where I live, I mean, I live in Brighton on the south coast of Britain. And, you know, if, if I walk out of my house now, I could be on a, um, a Iron Age hill fort in about 15 minutes, you know. So this stuff's all around, you know, there's standing stones and bits of kind of um, weird arcana all over the place. So it's that that was, I imagine that they, they put this stone there as a marker as the people at that period were trying to understand what was going on there. But whether or not it has the, has the powers that, that Zach is suggesting is something else, but you know, but also it's a kind of throwback to a um, um, a kids' TV show from the 60s called The Owl Service, which had a similar stone, which I just loved. You know, like the idea of that the, the stones, the circle through the stone is also is, is a window, but also a kind of portal, you know, that can transport you. Yeah, the music by uh, Clint Mansell, coupled with uh, by the, the quick uh, video cuts and strobe lit scenes, play a big role in creating attention and sense of dread in this film talk about crafting this unique approach yeah well i wanted the film to have to have the music and this and this lighting built into it you know it's not they these the strobes and the 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 sound design aren't a kind of a layering into the movie to make you feel uneasy in this in a traditional soundtrack way they're they're diegetic they're in they're in the scenes you know they're written into the into the script um, as part of the sound experiments that are being held in the in the, in the woods by the um, by Dr. Wendell, so and that was kind of the thinking behind that was like the beginning of it was thinking, well, what, how do you when you're working with kind of um, uh, uh, the lower budget range, it's like you want the stuff that's great, you want to push it right to the front, you know. So if you you've got Clint Mansell doing the music, you want to hear the Clint Mansell music really really loud, and it also allowed him to kind of a freedom there and it, you know because you, you work with when you work with kind of uh, with composers that the, the music can go one of two ways it can end up as like um sound beds underneath stuff and go you know you know you get like a soundtrack and you go god this soundtrack's amazing i don't recognize it but i've seen the film you know it's that these things can be like sunk so deep under the under the dialogue that it just becomes a mumble or that the soundtrack's right at the top of the movie and you hear it and it's like it's featured and that's kind of where we want it to go with this um, but we weirdly, because of COVID, we had a long time to prep. So we did a lot of experimenting. Clint did a thing with, um, he got hold of a thing called a MIDI sprout, which you could plug, you put sensors on a plant. And you, if you touch the plant, the um, electrical um, biofeedback would then make a signal that would then go into the synthesizer. So a lot of the sound, like some of the sound in the, in the compositions that he's kind of duetting with shrubs. That's incredible. Wow. wow. So there is a science behind all that. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Very superstitious. Anybody, 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 anybody,
the boo crew absolutely love props and this movie had some amazing props like the axe and you know the creepy photographs did you keep anything from the production yeah i've got the book which is the spell book yeah i was very particular about getting hold of that (laughs) i don't blame you yeah exactly (laughs) beautiful but then we've still got the car from um sightseers as well oh cool We 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 drive around in that. Nice. <laughs> so one thing to note too is that everyone in this film feels displaced, but they're all brought together in yearning or searching for something, whether it's a relationship, a cure, an existential answer. How did you manage to funnel that trepidation and sense of disorientation that we are all feeling through this pandemic, through the intentions of these characters and the journey they take? The whole thing, the whole sense of the the um, the how the pandemic panned out was really odd, and and I feel like I've been doing lots of interviews for the film, and when I talk about my experience of the pandemic, you get halfway through talking about it and realise that it's the same as everybody's, you know. It's like, but because we've all been indoors, my, I feel like mine's like an epiphany, like it's I'm the only person who's experienced it. But it, it's like that that feeling of like that zeitgeisty thing. I've never seen it so apparent and close as the experience we've been through where what I was thinking, you were thinking, someone in Poland was thinking, someone in China was thinking, everyone's thinking the same thing. And I had a, I had a, did an interview for, for something uh, um, at the beginning of it. And, and I realized that it's the, like the fir- it's the first experience, global experience that everybody's had at the same time. You know, even whatever you can think of, which is the biggest thing that's happened, it might be some people are on the other side of it or they didn't think, you know, or, or it would come in a wave and it would get to them at some point. But this thing is like all, all at the same time. And, and I thought that was a very odd moment, you know, and, that, and I think tapping into that anxiety was part of the making of this film. Now, Joel, Reese, Haley, and Alora are all such wonderful actors. What was it like to see your script become real through them? And were there any surprises that you got out of that experience and what they brought? Well, it's working with Reese Shearsmith is always terrifying because he's like an incredible writer in his own right. You know, he's the um, League of Gentlemen TV show and um, Inside Number Nine, which is his kind of. Um, which is a, a show which is made of um, short, uh, basically a new, a new episode every thing, a new story every episode. So, which I think is some of the best writing on on British television, you know, by by a long chalk. So, having him read stuff out is a, it gives it an extra kind of shiver, frisson of terror to me as the, as a filmmaker. Also, making making stuff. This is like the second film that I've written. You know, soul have the soul writing credit on. And I, I never thought what a nightmare that would be in terms of like the, the the kind of absolute responsibility for everything is on you. You know, in the past, you know, I'm about eight, nine movies in and, and 
you know, other movies, are, I've, I didn't even think about it. I was going, oh, yeah, the script's the script. It's great. Yeah, let's go, you know. And then when it's your own, you're like, oh, God, I, yeah, I could have written anything but this. I could have written, a, you know, a musical or something. So that side of it. So, but, the, um, but, yeah, and it, it, one of the things that happened on the film, because it is intense and it was made, you know, the, the, the schedule is intense, is that you just disappear into the kind of experience of it. So you don't really even think about it. They just, it's... It, you know, and that, which is great for the actors because they have no pause; they can't stop. They're just they're just being it. So you kind of become oddly detached from the script and float above it and go, "Oh, that's, that's all right." <laughs> the location of the woods is breathtaking. Like, yes, it's gorgeous. Where was that filmed? And also, did anything creepy happen there? Because I'm just would be so creeped out at night in those woods. Yeah, I mean, it was it was north of London. Um, in um, Henley and it was actually pretty nice the woods themselves I mean they were kind of they were the hardest thing we found was finding places that weren't that wasn't managed you know most places are you know have paths through them and so they have to cut the the branches down so they don't drop on ramblers and kill them and stuff but this place was wild you know there was broke it looked like a bomb had dropped in it which is more like what a real wood would look like Um, but the scary stuff was that, that it was full of deer so they would, you'd be walking along them and they'd just jump out in front of you. <laughs> um, and then they were also, they, they, they do a quite a good line in screaming foxes as well. Uh, so you hear this like, the, the sound of a, a fox is much like the sound of either a baby being murdered or someone being brutally abused somewhere. So you kind of hear this. Oh, man. <laughs> is that what that the fox it. says? That's what the fox says. Wow. That's literally what I've the been fox wondering. Says. Don't believe their propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Every scene that we see with Zach and Martin is wince inducing, and it's kind of like the clicks of a roller coaster yeah. as it travels to the top. How do you know when to make it drop? Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 there are muscles that are at work here which are not dissimilar to doing comedy. So I've, I've made, you know, I've worked in comedy, TV comedy, and directed comedy films as well so it's that it's about timing and it's about the waiting and how far you know you've got to be there going right how far can we take the audience how far can we push them and still it's still being enjoyable or on that cusp of being going too far or or whatever you know so and it and it's it's that kind of it you're looking at the conversation between the audience and the and the film you know so you're trying to guess what the audience is saying which is like no they're not no that's not going to happen is it oh god no will it Oh, they're not going to show that. Oh no, they have. You know, so that that helps you work out what you know where the cuts lie in, in the scene. Yeah, the movie has some fantastic gore effects. What uh, was some of the most challenging effects or scenes to craft? I must say, I, I found, and this was a surprise on the film. I don't know, it, was, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was. Was that I'd just forgotten how much I enjoyed doing um, prosthetics, and a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of kind of sad faces you see in pre-production whenever anyone mentions that there's going to be a prosthetic because it's like quite a lot of work and it takes time. And, you know, the, 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 AD, the assistant director goes, oh, no, oh, really? Really? Is this going to happen? This is going to take ages. But I was working with Dan Martin, um, who did the effects. He did Possessor as well um, and uh, Colour Out of Space and all that. So, and Dan, I've worked with Dan for years and he's just really fast, you know, so the stuff comes in, it's all prep, boom, in and out. So it really, it didn't even put a kind of a slight dent in our schedule and it just, to have it 
to have the real stuff there, like that, the the prosthetic foot, you couldn't tell it was not real unless you touched it. It was uh, unbelievable. And it kind of, it galvanizes everybody, galvanizes the crew and the, and the performers. They just, you know, and it's just great to see such craft in front of you, you know, but equally we've done stuff with Dan when it's gone terribly wrong and everyone's gone. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So in the scenes where you overwhelm us, by bathing us in light and sound. These are big plot points in the film as well, making that a sensory experience that the characters are going through and they're taking us with them. What does that look like in the script? And what are the challenges of making it work? Is there a sense of how much of that is post-production movie magic? Are there times on set where you get afraid it might not work? And how do you get around that? Well, in the script, there's not much stuff there because I it's my script and I'm directing it. So... And I'm part of the production team, so I don't I don't have to gussy it up like a, a script that's going out to um, to a studio. So my scripts are rough; they look like haikus. There's no description, there's no nothing. So and those and those bits are kind of, you know, I, I have an idea of what I'm going to do, you know, because I kind of come from a post background, so I kind of know what I'm, uh, you know, what's possible and what's not, or what what direction I'm going going to go in. But also, again, because of the, the long run up to the making the movie, we we had a prep period that was uh, that allowed us to shoot a lot of material, which we never would have done on a, on a film of this budget normally. So um, Nick Gillespie, the DOP, and I shot tons and tons and tons of test stuff. So we kind of knew what 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 we had going in but it allowed us to buy stuff you know like we we just like looking through the internet and going oh look at this is a massive crystal why don't we buy that we could shoot through that and then this thing turned up like the size of a kind of a basketball like prism and we're like oh hey and so we shot through that for a bit and tested that and you know and, and things went on or we buy um nick bought loads of dye and kind of like tiny tanks and stuff oil and we were doing loads of tests with stuff like that so it, it by the time we got to shoot the thing we, we 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 pretty much knew what we were doing this journey is designed to have that same effect whether you watch it on a laptop which is how we experience it but i imagine even more enveloping in a in a large screening room or theater now the pandemic has certainly affected the ability and apprehension regarding going to the cinema at least to in America here, it's had a devastating effect on the cinema industry. It's also created new opportunities for creators with the streaming platforms and everything like that. But we've had a lot of blows to our cinematic culture here. In L.A. alone, historic theaters like the Cinerama Dome just closed forever. All the arc-like theaters are now gone. The, you know, the Pacific Theater chain is gone. What do you think is the future of going to the cinema? I think it will recover I mean, I think that the cinema is more linked to what independent film looks like and how, you know, and where people will see those kinds of movies. And that that's something that had changed before the pandemic in a way, you know, like the the kind of the, the bigger movies, the big tempo movies were slowly edging everything out anyway, weren't they? So it's kind of, there's that, you know, I think if we were, if we were releasing this film, and there hadn't been pandemic, apart from it being really weird because it's all about a pandemic. And then, but it, um, they, you know, it, by this point in the year, there would have been a tentpole movie every week, wouldn't there? And and you know, it would have been oh, and an enormous movie in the middle of the month, just like a ginormous thing. And then even the smaller films would have just been general Marvel character-based movies, wouldn't they? Or a Star Wars seventeen or something like that. So I think that I, I think that that's that's where the change is going to come. It's like, how do people 
where do they get to see those the smaller stuff? Where do they get to see the boot the B the real B movies? You know, how do B movies exist? Because the B movie itself is the thing, is the engine, the room of cinema in a way. You know, without the without the B movies, we'd have none of these tentpole films. There's none of this stuff would exist, you know. And it's like what where's the support for that? And where are people gonna see it? Now, if they're gonna see it streaming, you know, there's pluses and minuses to streaming, isn't there? It's like now you if you're you know, 14, you can like dig out some really crazy stuff on the, on the streaming platforms. If you know where to look, you know, which, which you never would have had if you were just sitting there trying to find stuff in VHS stores, you know, so that's brilliant. That's really good. But, but at the same time, the actual economy for filmmakers is collapsed. So how, how does that work going forward? I don't know. So let's get into a bit of the future here. We've all been hearing about your return to the Meg, which was this giant 2018 action, fun, shark adventure. How will that big budget and those resources allow you to amplify even further the things that make Ben Wheatley films different, that deeply personal experience for the viewer? It's certainly, I'm looking at it and going, it's an extension of a kind of... um, uh, the action cinema stuff I love, you know, and being able to have very little boundaries to what you can do, you know, which is really exciting, you know, and you, and it, and it's basically sitting there going, no, think bigger, think bigger, oh, try and think bigger, you know, so it, it, that side of it is, is really amazing. And then the, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's trying to bring as much tension as possible to the action. That's what I'm, that's what I'm concentrating on, but also being, bringing the humor side of the, the, some of the movies I've made so that the, so that that balances, but also just trying to make it, you know, keep the thing that everybody loves about the Meg. Cause it's like, you know, everyone I talk to is like, Oh my God, the Meg. <laughs> and so it seems to be the general reaction to the Meg. So it's trying to, it's, it's trying to make sure that it, it, it continues those things that everybody likes, but, but amps it up and up as much as we can. Evil Dead 2 with sharks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Evil Dead Shark 2. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Awesome, Ben. Well, dude, thank you so much for making this amazing film, and thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Me too, man. Thank you. Wow. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 223. Special thanks to our guest, Ben Wheatley. At time of release, experience his new film, In the Earth, in theaters now. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.